I hope your day is great. Our network has another new show to announce. It is Modern Rules with Stephanie Rule. Stephanie is an anchor at MSNBC, and this show invites a small number of guests to join her in candid conversation, often about a contentious topic that the participants don't necessarily agree on. In keeping with that theme, today's classic goes back to John Harvey Kellogg, whose opinions and practices were contentious when he was living and continue to be so today. Whenever we share this episode on our social media today, there is often a lively discussion about everything from wellness to pseudoscience to religion to circumcision and everything in between. So stay tuned at the end of the episode for a little peek at Modern Rules. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So a note before we begin this. Some of John Harvey Kellogg's thought was about the sexual health of adults. So if you are listening with young children, be aware there is going to be some talk about sex and some sexual terminology in this episode. Yeah, a little bit of anatomy that you may or may not have covered yet. Can I tell you a story? Por favor. I used to be a massage therapist like a legitimate massage therapist. I had a license and all that. And I was getting ready to start my first full-time job at a spa. And this was, the spa was like the kind of place up in the mountains where you would go and you would get three health food meals a day. And in addition to your massages, there were day hikes and nutritional counseling and uh, and that sort of thing. Like it was a very health spa it's kind a wellness of place. spa. Yeah. The kind of place where uh, there was such a focus on healthy eating that people would routinely ask the the maintenance guy if they could smuggle if he could smuggle some hamburgers for them. <laughs> um, so the night before my first day of work there, I was staying at this condo that had cable, and I hadn't had a TV at all for about four years. So of course I turned it on, and what was on was coincidentally the Road to Wellville. Which is based on a book by T.C. Boyle. Yes. Have you ever seen this or or read this? Uh, yes and yes, but it's been quite some time on both. Yeah, it's a fictionalized comedy about John Harvey Kellogg. And in the movie, uh, everybody is at this spa to get better. And there's a lot of stuff going on that just seems really cuckoo. From weird electrical therapies to a hyper strict focus on never, ever, ever masturbating. Uh, it's absolutely fictional. <laughs> Uh, but the Battle Creek Sanitarium was a real place run by John Harvey Kellogg, who was a real guy. And it had its share of weirdness, which is what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, it's almost one of those things where you're like, why did you fictionalize this? I know. It's plenty weird as it is. That's sort of like Stone Mountain, Georgia. They really didn't need to make up all kinds of craziness about Stone Mountain <laughs> for 30 Rock because it's got its own craziness yeah. right there. Yep. <laughs> Um, so also, this is thanks in part to a listener request from Palace. We are going to talk about John Harvey Kellogg and the sanitarium at Battle Creek today. So John Harvey Kellogg was born in Tyrone, Michigan on February 26 of 1852, uh, and his parents were John Preston and Ann Kellogg. He was one of 16, that's one, six, 16 children, which included five from his father's first marriage. They were all devout Seventh-day Adventists, and they moved to Battle Creek, Michigan, which was at that point the home of the Seventh-day Adventist church when John was young. His father owned a broom factory there, and all of the children worked in it as soon as they were of legal age to do so. When 
John got older, he worked as a printer's devil, which is kind of a gopher slash apprentice type role, at a Seventh-day Adventist publishing house. Uh, His interest in medicine and health reform probably started there because of the materials they were printing. Ellen White, who was co-founder of the Seventh-day Adventists, had begun to write extensively about health and wellness. A core Seventh-day Adventist belief is that people's bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. So they should be treated well and kept healthy through clean living and healthful behaviors. And people should avoid, quote, unclean foods and tobacco and alcohol. When he was 16, he worked for a little while as a teacher, although some kind of respiratory trouble ended his teaching work and caused him to return to studying. Uh, John's father did not really see a lot of reason to educate his children. He believed that the second coming was imminent and that would have been a waste of time. So many of his siblings never finished high school. And in spite of that, John got his M.D. from Bellevue Hospital Medical College in 1875. Uh, For scattered years between 1883 and 1911, he also studied in Europe uh, and continued his education in surgery and medicine there. His goal in all the study was really to be a good doctor and a good surgeon, and he was. He was a successful doctor and a very respected surgeon, and he continued to practice surgery until he was in his 70s. He also founded Battle Creek College, which later became part of Andrews University, and he served as its first president. He was also an advocate of health outreach for the poor and needy. He believed that all Christian institutions should work with the poor in their local area, and he also believed that Seventh-day Adventists were, in particular, called to work as medical missionaries. He was part of the Adventist creation of a medical mission in Chicago, the closest major city to Battle Creek at the time. Uh, Detroit was much smaller then. And that was in 1893. Uh, And that medical mission became a model for other missions in Chicago and elsewhere. The goal was to see to both the physical and spiritual health of the city's poorest residents. On February 22nd, 1879, he married Ella E. Eaton. And they lived in a 50-room home in Battle Creek. That sounds enormous. It does indeed. They really needed all that room because together they fostered about 40 children and legally adopted seven of them. They had no biological children because, allegedly, as just seems to be a running theme with every topic that I pick, (laughs) their marriage was chaste and never consummated. You do have bad luck with that. (laughs) I don't know if it's bad luck. It's just funny because you pick things not knowing that and it always comes up in the research. Yeah, I I just keep picking people to talk about. And then it turns out that that person, by coincidence, uh, has a chaste marriage. Yes, has a chaste marriage and practiced celibacy for their whole life. Uh, And although some of his children were Black, John was actually a proponent of the eugenics movement and founded the Race Betterment Foundation in 1911 to pursue ideas of racial purity, which I think is a little startling because you think about all of his sort of seeming good works and outreach. Right. Well, there were really a lot of people during those years who were active in the eugenics movement who uh, that their activity sort of tarnishes all of the other good works that they did by having been uh, part of this movement that is, at the time, was not looked at with quite the level of horror as it is today. Like, today, that whole idea is really really upsetting. Um, It was, uh, that was not really the... The, the thought at the time period in those late 1800, early 1900 years. And one of the Race Betterment Foundation's objectives at the time was to start a eugenic registry so that they could ensure racial purity. 
So yes, that's that's another. It it sounds so alien and unsettling, right? But at the time, it was a pretty common, right? There were uh, a lot of people who I think otherwise were ahead of their time in what they were thinking about, uh, and then also participated in the eugenics movement, which becomes startling to people. Yeah. Um. So that that's sort of the the basics of who this person was. Uh, a big part of his life was his philosophy on health. And you hear a lot about his very more extreme views when you hear about John Harvey Kellogg. It becomes really easy to write him off as this kind of weirdo quack, since a lot of his practices were way apart from mainstream thought at the time. Uh, they definitely don't hold up to scientific scrutiny now, and some of them were kind of scientifically questionable even at the time. Um, but... In, in spite of that, he was really always on the lookout for medical evidence that his theories were actually effective. And he did seem to question his beliefs pretty regularly. He would he would advocate something, and then when it turned out that that was not a good idea, and he had proof of that, he, he would turn away from it and, right. and advocate something else. So it was kind of a quest for the newest and best knowledge, and sometimes it didn't pan out, and sometimes it did. Right. Uh there's also the context to consider in the world of medicine at the time. Pasteurization and the germ theory of disease were really only starting to gain a mainstream acceptance. Diseases still spread rapidly because of a lack of basic hygiene. And a lot of, quote, medicines were patent medicines that had no real medical value. Cocaine and laudanum were being used medicinally. So Kellogg's focus on preventative care and healthy living was really groundbreaking in a lot of ways. As we said before, he was a trained and respected doctor. And a lot of what he believed and wrote about meshes pretty well with common sense health beliefs today, uh, or at least mainstream natural health ideas. He advocated healthy eating, exercise, vegetarianism, and low-calorie diets. Uh, those last two you could sort of argue either way for, but in the field of holistic health, they're pretty much staples at this point. And we have all kinds of documentations of these ideas. For almost 70 years, Kellogg edited a magazine called Good Health. It was originally a Seventh-day Adventist publication called Health Reformer, and in this he would publish his philosophies. He also wrote many, many books on health and healthy living, and much of this material is actually in public domain now, so you can find a lot of his books online for free. He was really ahead of the curve on some of the health ideas that we take for granted today. He was an ardent believer that the American diet included more protein than people really needed and that people should bathe more often than once a week. He also really wanted people to wear less restrictive, more breathable clothing than they generally did in the 19th century. He was also an anti-smoking advocate long before mainstream culture was ever thinking of smoking as hazardous. And he correctly concluded that smoking is bad for the heart. Uh, from Tobaccoism, or How Tobacco Kills, he says, Tobacco, in its various forms, is one of the most mischievous of all drugs. There is perhaps no other drug which injures the body in so many ways and so universally as does tobacco. Some drugs offer a small degree of compensation for the evil effects which they produce, but tobacco has not a single redeeming feature and gives nothing in return for the $1.5 billion which it costs the nation annually, besides the 100,000 lives which it probably destroys. So that's uh, pretty startlingly modern for the times for he was writing. For considering when he was writing, yes. Yeah. 
He also wrote about the dangers of sitting, which is something that's really been increasingly present in medical literature in the past few years. From The Simple Life in a Nutshell, one need not degenerate physically because his occupation is sedentary. Always sit erect, with chest held high and the small of the back supported. Sit as little as possible. Standing and lying are more natural and healthful positions than sitting. One may exercise while sitting at work by deep breathing and by stiffening the muscles of first one limb a few seconds, then the other. All the muscles in the body may be exercised this way. Again, still going on today. Like, that's... Well, and I... I, The stand-up desk movement is, (laughs) The standing desk thing is just, yeah. I, I hear more and more people talking about their standing desks, and I think it's only been maybe in the last five years yeah. that that suddenly you're seeing more and more research about how how terrible not just the fact that people are not exercising but the, the sedentary time that they're spending sitting yeah during during the work day yeah Kellogg also had a huge focus on food and he developed or refined a number of health foods including peanut butter soy milk substitutes for coffee and tea and breakfast cereals although his brother really did a lot of the legwork on that one he also believed in a concept called biologic living which combined a near-vegan diet along with other choices uh, in a person's lifestyle. Also from The Simple Life, in a nutshell, he wrote about this as, Live out of doors. Do your work under the trees instead of behind doors and opaque walls. Dig in the garden. Explore the woods and hills. Follow the brooks. Watch the squirrels and their gambles and learn the songs of the birds. Fix up a sleeping porch or balcony and so take an outing all night long and every night. And don't move inside when the frost comes. Outdoor sleeping is the best life preserver ever known. Simple life in a nutshell is a good way to get an overall sense of his health philosophies. And it goes on to outline all kinds of dietary and lifestyle recommendations. It covers food, exercise, personal hygiene, sleep, clothing, mental hygiene, and some additional suggestions. They start off pretty common sense, although maybe not 100% science-based, like eating only natural foods, avoiding meats, eating eggs only in moderation, avoiding cow's milk and animal fats, emphasizes getting the fat your body needs from olives and nuts instead. He also goes on to recommend that people avoid, quote, poison-containing foods, which are coffee, tea, chocolate, and cocoa. Uh, And he recommends that people get completely rid of all condiments and spicy foods. This is where, in that particular synopsis of sort of what his health beliefs were, he starts to lose me at this point. (laughs) It's, uh, uh, yeah. I'm just <laughs> saying I made a cup of coffee in a travel cup so I could take it in the shower with me this morning. So yes. I'm I'm definitely going to have a hard time embracing this concept. Right. Uh, even though I recognize that this is probably, it would be extremely helpful, but it would also involve, for me, at least uh, a loss of some quality of life. Right. Uh His mental hygiene ideas included not worrying or becoming self-centered, practicing self-control, taking a vacation when you start dreaming about work, and avoiding patent medicines, as well as avoiding alcohol, tobacco, and drugs. Which is all pretty common sense uh, kind of advice to to go by. So, you know, so far we've talked about a lot of stuff that's pretty reasonable, if maybe a little more restrictive and bland than we would like. Um. He he also, for a while, was pushing the idea that people should fletcherize their food, which is just to chew it until it became sort of a goopy mask that would go down your throat on its own. 
Um, this idea came from Horace Fletcher, known as the Great Masticator, and that's where the two each bite 32 times rule comes from. So this is an example of where, when evidence started to suggest that maybe that was not the best idea, John Harvey Kellogg changed his point of view. Um, he moved away of recommending that people Fletcherize their food uh, once he determined that that much chewing was basically pulverizing the food's fiber into uselessness. So you were denying yourself the benefits of fibrous foods. Yep. Uh, from his New York Times obituary, there's a quote, An authority on water therapy, he was the discoverer of the therapeutic value of the electric light and inventor of the electric light bath. He was also the discoverer of the sinusoidal current. So this was the point in the world of John Harvey Kellogg's health beliefs that it starts to kind of nudge into the, okay, not sure what's going on there. This is clearly something that people would have known what it was about because it was in his obituary uh, when it was printed. But at this point, they're far enough out of the mainstream thought that I had to go look up what they were. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the electric light bath was a device that you would sit in. It enclosed everything but your head. And inside of it were lots and lots of light bulbs and clusters that were, that were directed at different parts of your body. He built one in 1891 and used it by his own count. So... Who knows if this number is inflated? In 50,000 cases. He wrote in the book Light Therapeutics about his precursors using light to basically cure everything. But he wrote about mostly using it in short treatments to draw blood into the skin, saying that doing so would treat kidney disease, diabetes, rheumatic diseases, anemia, and other diseases. He also advocated the use of the light bath as a preventive measure in people who had sedentary lifestyles, calling it, quote, the best substitute for muscular activity. And the sinusoidal current was a high-frequency oscillating electrical current that would make muscles contract without causing pain. And he used this to make a device meant to exercise the muscles without having to actually move, which is a thing that people are still trying to do today. Right. Both of these things have analogs that are in actual medical use today, like light therapy for season seasonal affective disorder, um, and electrical stimulation that's used in some physical therapies. But neither of them today are in sort of the widespread cure-all, everyone-should-do-this fashion of, of what Kellogg was advocating. And additionally, a lot of his health practices were focused on the bowel. There were lots and lots of enemas and colonic irrigations in his approach to health and wellness. Yeah, the, the, all the, the stuff with the enemas and the colon and all of that that comes up over and over and is one of the things that starts to mark uh, John Harvey Kellogg as kind of maybe a, a little bit off base in terms of what he advocated. Medically. And there are still people that advocate for those. Yes. But it's not a, like a widespread accepted medical approach to treating conditions. Right. Uh, the way that Kellogg was advocating for. Yeah, he was probably, he was pretty much giving everyone who came to the sanitarium enemas all time as a course of general health and wellness right yeah. so sometimes when you will see in a like some kind of quack doctor in a movie he was saying oh you should you need an enema that it's a really, callback to Kellogg. it is absolutely a callback to him he was also into electro electrotherapy and vibrational therapy and again both of these do have some uses today but he was pretty much uh, advocating them in broad widespread use on everyone often and he had some very restrictive views on sex. Uh, it was 
in his mind, barely acceptable even within marriage, and then only very infrequently. It was certainly unacceptable outside of marriage, and he was very, very, very focused on people not masturbating ever. Uh, He blamed masturbation for everything from poor posture to cancer. He was in favor of circumcision without anesthetic for boys and the application of carbolic acid to the clitoris for girls as an anti-masturbation tool. Yes. Yikes. Yikes is exactly what I was thinking. I I just, I'm sure listeners like me are um, feeling tense right at the moment. Right. So John Harvey Kellogg put all of these beliefs into active practice at the Battle Creek Sanitarium, also known as the SAN, where he became the chief physician in 1876 when he was only 24. He also opened a second sanitarium in Miami Springs, Florida in 1931. The SAN had been originally opened in 1866 as the Western Health Reform Institute, which was a health facility based on Seventh-day Adventist beliefs and practices. The idea was to treat illnesses naturally and to encourage people into preventative wellness practices. So its heart was in the right place. For sure. Really, especially considering the state of medicine at the time. And it wasn't really all that successful before John got there. There wasn't an official medical staff, and it housed only about 20 patients when John came on board. So one of the first things that he did was to hire a staff of doctors and nurses. He set about trying to attract a clientele, and his target market was primarily made up of people who had things we might think of today as stress-related illnesses. So harried businessmen experiencing things like exhaustion and chronic indigestion. A lot of what went on at the SAN were common-sense wellness practices, like eating healthy, if extremely bland, food, exercising, and abstaining from alcohol and tobacco. Uh, And a lot of the things that you'd also think of when you hear the word spa, like massages and nice relaxing baths. But it also had all kinds of the electrical and vibrational treatments, like we talked about earlier, lots and lots of electric light therapies and enemas and all the other sorts of things that are sort of regarded as quackery today. And it ended up becoming a retreat for the rich, and some really famous people actually visited the sand to take the cure, including John D. Rockefeller, Amelia Earhart, Sojourner Truth, and Mary Todd Lincoln. A fire destroyed part of the sanitarium in 1902, including all of the main building, but it was eventually rebuilt. In 1903, John's relationship with the church became strained after he published a book that didn't entirely mesh with the Adventist doctrine. He ultimately split from the church, and he set up the sanitarium as an independent entity with its own board, making it a non-denominational institution. The SAN reached its height of popularity in 1906. That year, it received 7,000 guests and employed 1,800 staff. It continued to operate until the Great Depression when financial circumstances forced John to sell it after 67 years. And today's preponderance of breakfast cereals is thanks in part to the sand, where the biologic diet was so boring and monotonous that John was constantly looking for alternatives that fit the philosophical criteria but also offered variety. While John was the staff physician at the sand, his brother, Will Keith Kellogg, also known as W.K. Kellogg, managed the sanitarium, handling the books, the supplies, the general maintenance, all of that kind of stuff. So while John was seeing to the medical end of things, 
WK was handling pretty much all of the day-to-day running of the place. The administration. Yes. And their relationship wasn't always on the best of terms. John could be a taskmaster, and WK worked really long hours for very little pay. Allegedly seven days a week with no vacations for seven years. Which is interesting because it seems to contradict his brother John's writings, which say to observe the Sabbath without working at all. And he advocates for taking a vacation when you start to dream about work. So Presumably, yes. He <laughs> Presumably, if WK had been working seven days a week for his taskmaster brother for seven years with no vacation, he's probably dreaming about work often. Probably horrible nightmares and stress. So yeah, John's it seemed to be like, you all should do this unless you are me. Unless you are. Or my brother. One of the two of us working diligently to make sure the rest of you do the things. Yes. It's a little unclear exactly which of the Kellogg brothers really invented wheat flakes, which were a wheat-based version of what we think of as cornflakes today. That happened in 1894. And as is the case in quite a number of inventions, John claimed the idea for how to make these wheat flakes came to him in a dream. We've had that come up in several podcasts before. But according to other sources... John had given W.K. this easy-to-digest but very disgusting-to-eat wheat paste and told him to try to make something good out of it. Uh, W.K. left a batch of it out overnight where it started to dry out, and when he came in in the morning, he rolled what was left through rollers and then baked it, and it was actually pretty good. And they named it Granos. Yes. This wasn't the first ever breakfast cereal. It's It's predated by Granula, which was created by James Caleb Jackson. That was made from graham flour, and it was not really delicious, so it did not take off once it was introduced. John also made a cereal made of cornmeal and oatmeal biscuits, which were then ground, named granola. And they actually got sued, and they had to rename it granola. Yes, it probably was not the smartest idea to make a thing that was like your competitor's thing and then name it the same thing. (laughs) Because then you might get sued. It was also predated by shredded wheat, which was invented by Henry D. Perky of Colorado in 1893. He had promised to sell John a shredding machine, uh, which he was going to use to make his own shredded wheat, but he never delivered, which is one of the things that led to this experimentation of making cereals from other foods. And Will and John started Sanitas Food Company in 1897 to sell their cereal. In their first year, they sold more than 100,000 pounds of granose. Their factory, as it was called, was actually a barn on the grounds of the sand. They brought out cornflakes in 1898. And the profit margin was huge. Uh, And as people figured this out, suddenly there were a lot of competitors. One was C.W. Post, who founded what became the Post Cereal Company, who was a former sanitarium patient. And Post distributed a pamphlet called The Road to Wellville with his cereals. The novel and later movie got their name from that pamphlet. Post's earliest products were Postum, which was a coffee substitute made from cereal, which gives me a little bit of a chin scratch to go, hmm, I would try that. (laughs) And Grape Nuts. Grape Nuts still survive today. Yeah. John was really reluctant to promote the sale of these cereals. He was afraid that it was going to somehow reflect badly on the sand. So his brother did it all on his own, putting together a marketing campaign that included everything from door-to-door taste tests to big window displays. And in 1890, while John was abroad, Will actually went ahead and built a factory to replace the barn, which John made him pay $50,000 for after he returned. Uh, Will also took advantage of one of John's trips abroad to add sugar to cornflakes, which, of course, deepened the divide between them. Yes, John, of course, was not in favor of adding sugar to anything. 
Um, they did kind of mend things a little bit. They established the Battle Creek Toasted Cornflake Company in 1906. Will owned a third of it, and John owned the other two-thirds. The employees were mostly paid in stock because John was not a general, a generous person when it came to giving other people money. So once again, employing this sort of quick while he's not looking strategy, Will would quietly buy up the employees' stock that they were being paid in while John was away. So he eventually, through doing this, gained a controlling share in the company and was able to, to basically kick his brother out of it. That's quite a sibling relationship. Yeah, they, they did not <laughs> seem to have the most loving and supportive uh feeling between them. Yeah. Uh, the Kellogg serial story goes on from there. But long story short, the Kellogg company became a juggernaut. It was doing good business by the 20s, so by the time the Great Depression took hold, people were thinking of cereals as daily staples. And while the idea of a health spa had become a completely frivolous expense, uh, the Kellogg company thus became this huge institution of uh, provisions. But John unfortunately, mostly became considered something of a joke. Yeah, his wife Ella died in 1920. John himself had wanted to live to be 100, but he died on December 14, 1943, in Battle Creek at the age of 91. His cause of death was pneumonia. Thank you so much for joining us on this Saturday. If you have heard an email address or a Facebook URL or something similar over the course of today's episode, since it is from the archive, that might be out of date now. You can email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. And you can find us all over social media at Missed in History. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. We are living in complicated times. It feels like there is a whole new set of rules, but nobody knows where the actual lines are drawn. And for cable news, social media, and yes, podcasts filling the void with words, it seems like there's less of an actual conversation. I'm Stephanie Rule, MSNBC anchor and NBC News correspondent, and I want to tell you about my new podcast, Modern Rules. On this season of Modern Rules, I'm going to be spending time unpacking the hairiest of today's topics, from privilege and political correctness to Me Too, masculinity, and moral leadership. I've had some of the smartest, most thoughtful people I know join me in real candid conversations. People like my friend Questlove, who joins me to discuss political correctness and masculinity. All right, so look, the same way that Black Lives Matter has a secret ellipsis at the end of that sentence, you know, missing the word too, I realized that I'm going to hear hashtag speak so well. An actress, author, activist, Amber Tamblyn, to talk about the Me Too movement. I'm not going to sit and spend time trying to think about how to help men rehabilitate themselves. They need to do that work. Digital activist Rashad Robinson, who brings interesting perspective on social media and moral leadership. Had the white woman not exposed it, we would have never actually even had the story where Howard Schultz had had to go on air and talk about it. He was forced to do the right thing. And just to show you what I mean when I say we're going to get real, 
I am bringing on my mom, Louise Rule, talk about all things feminism. They seem to think they have to push it, push it, push it, and you don't have to push it. I like people to open the doors. I like people to say, I look nice. That's not an insult. For the next eight weeks, we're going to get into topics that are not always comfortable, but they are always compelling. I hope you'll join me this season for Modern Rules. Listen and subscribe to my new podcast, Modern Rules, on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.